Welcome to Made Not Born, a podcast about learning to lead for creativity. I'm your host, Alison Chadwick. I coach talented people to help them become true modern leaders, because the best creative leaders are mostly made, not born. They work out how to get the best from others through a sometimes messy but always fascinating journey of highs, lows and lessons. And this podcast is all about exploring that made not born journey about seeing that leadership is something you can learn and picking up a little wisdom about how. I'm talking to some inspiring leaders with great stories to tell, inviting them to share what they've learned about leading for creativity from their own successes and struggles and what they're still learning now. So let's talk about leading for creativity with my guest today, Rick Brim. Rick is the Chief Creative Officer of Adam and Eve DDB in the UK and New York, overseeing the group's entire creative output. The number one advertising agency in the UK, in both scale and also creative reputation, Adam and Eve creates outstanding work every year for clients from John Lewis to PlayStation to Con. And under Rick's inspiring creative leadership, the agency strengthened its position as one of the most respected and awarded agencies in the world, and in 2020 was named European Agency of the Decade by the Cannes Judges. Rick has been rightly recognised too. AdAge named him their CCO of the Year in 2019, he was Campaign's Creative Person of the Year in 2020, and he's basically just never out of the top few slots in any Best Creative Leaders list. Described as a world-class talent who raises the bar for the rest of the industry, a creative genius, and a leader whose work doesn't just reflect culture, but creates culture, Rick has, like it or not, become a modern industry figurehead. But he wears that mantle so lightly that you would hardly notice it. Also described as one of the nicest people in the business, what I love about Rick and why I'm so excited to be kicking off this podcast with him as my very first guest is that more than pretty much any creative superstar I've met over the years, and I've met many, he is truly down to earth and not driven by his ego. He doesn't seek the limelight, he loves helping others succeed and in fact is probably squirming at all these accolades. In fact, I hope he's still there and hasn't hung up on me in disgust. Rick, are you there? Two seconds away. <laughs> Two seconds away from... <laughs> no, 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 thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so looking forward to chat to you. And I would just really love to start actually by going kind of back a few years, because this podcast is all about the journey into creative leadership and what you kind of figure out along the way. And I'd really love to go back to the early days of that journey for you. So where did it all begin? You were brought up in Manchester, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I was brought up in Manchester and was in my peer group of friends. You sort of either went into a profession, you worked for your family or your father, your cousins or you started a recruitment business and and I, I was fit for, for none of those. My, I didn't have a business to go into. I don't think I would have made a great doctor or lawyer. Um, and I, I didn't want to go into recruitment. So, and, and, and I was always um, creative. Didn't know where to channel that really. I, I didn't, I think it's, and I think this is very true today as well. I, I'm, I don't think people know the creative industries exist and that they are actual jobs that you can have in them. I mean, there's the obvious ones, like people know that car designers exist or fashion designers exist or artists exist. But beyond that, it's very rare to know that there, there is a creative industry and within that industry of very different silos of things that you can find. So you can find your place within it. So I 
started studying, um, I did my foundation at Manchester Metropolitan. And I, I remember very distinctly watching a programme um, on the Saatchi brothers. And it was about the heady days of the 80s and the glass offices with elevators on the outside, which as a kid I was always fascinated about. And this world where you could sit around and, and have ideas. And, and so I thought I'd, I wanted a bit of that. So I headed to London. I got a place at uh, St. Martin's, which was, I didn't know about any of the other courses. I just knew St. Martin's was the art school that was in a song and therefore a good one. Um, and I sort of flirted, messed around there with photography, filmmaking, and they had an advertising element. And so, so like, like many American colleges, you, you major or minor. So I minored in photography and majored in advertising. I think if I had my time again, I'd do it the other way around. And then um, I found out that you had to work in pairs, uh, which I didn't really understand, but found myself a partner and worked in, in a pair and, and, and very quickly understood why that was the case. Yeah, it all started from there. We were based in Covent Garden and it was a lot of fun. And then from there, uh, a lady called, I can't remember her name, Anka Flaumer, I think she was called, from a German agency called Springer Jacobi, came over and said, do you want to come to Germany for six months on a placement? And we'd been around doing the rounds as you do. And it was coming up to, up to Christmas and nobody was hiring and everybody was waiting on a pitch and all the same things. And so we thought, well, let's go to Hamburg for six months, earn some money and then come back and, and get on the... Um, the old placement train, which we did. And it was very different. Like, what was different about it? Was it fun? Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. We had copywriters and art directors working into us. And we were, I mean, we were two schmucks straight out of college. It felt like that Sarches programme that I saw. They, they had this Christmas party where they had, um, I mean, this was, this was the uh, 99 millennium year, uh, where they had, yeah. um, uh, and it was their 25th anniversary, and they had an exact replica of Studio 54 behind this curtain that the creative director came through naked on a white horse and pulled <gasps> down this curtain. And, and you were just like, where the fuck am I? This is, <laughs> what the hell is going on here? And, and so, so it, was, it was like the heady days. And then we came back and did a placement at Rainey Kelly. And um, the rest, as they say, is, is history. But, but that's, how, that's how I got into it. Um, had some amazing bosses um, to start off with. Yes, actually, that's something I'd love to jump in and ask you about, actually, Rick, which is some of those amazing bosses, because I think, you know, when we do journey up into leadership, one of the things that helps us is both, I think, kind of taking lessons, if you like, from good early bosses we had, but also sometimes the opposite, you know, people who we've been led by, who we think, oh, my God, I never want to be like that to anybody else. But it's great to hear that you did have some really good influences on you. So tell me a bit about that. What did you experience from some of those really good early bosses? I had I had two sets of bosses that, that who, for me at that time, were who I answered to and they were my bosses. And they ran the placement schemes and they, they looked after the people coming in and they were creative directors uh, of Rainey Kelly at the time, Phil Cockrell and Graham Story and um, Pitt Bishop and Chris Hodgkiss. And they both taught me something so very important because those are the formative years of in the industry and I think it's really important those like formative years in your life that's where your good habits and your bad habits I truly believe are learned from Phil and Graham we got this unrelenting drive for craft and art direction and writing and and, and the same from Pip and Chris but it was two very different styles and it taught me that you don't have to be one way 
or the other, it's actually better to always come at it differently and try not to have a style because, but also it, it, the, 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 the days were fun. Those early days were really, really good fun. I think that is very important to get the best work out of people and to, to get the best work out because if people are having fun whilst they're doing it, nine times out of 10, it seeps through into the work. And we had a lot of fun then. We had a lot of laughing. There was a lot of joking. There was a lot of taking the piss out of each other and and camaraderie. And you felt part of something. And I think that is crucially important in getting uh, the best work out of feeling part of of something and people coming in and having fun. And I think that more than ever, I think this year is that's what's really hurt me personally. This year, it's not been fun for many people. Yeah, absolutely. I love that kind of focus on actually it's just got to be fun. I mean, we work so hard and I think in any role, not just in advertising, that all the hours that you give to it, if if the people around you and above you are not making it an enjoyable experience, that's really hard, isn't it? And I agree with you. I think this year has been very tough. So No, it just becomes a job. If you're not having fun, there's no reason why this job is any different from any other job. So you had a very successful trajectory then doing amazing work and working in fantastic agencies like Leo Burnett and CHI, and then of course Adam and Eve. At what point on that journey do you think you kind of realised that you were a leader? I mean, I know that sounds a bit odd, but you know, you obviously have been a fantastically successful creative all of that time and still. But at some point, also you started to take responsibility for others and for you know getting great work out through others, not just doing it yourself. So, and I know how humble you are. So maybe that word leader doesn't perhaps yeah. or didn't perhaps sit so well with you but when did when do you think that kind of dawned on you that that was what you were I think we had a period in Leo Burnett where John Burley was running um the McDonald's account and he um stepped up to be ECD and he entrusted uh, McDonald's to Dan Fisher and my partner at the time and I and we did a terrible job on it absolutely terrible a me and him argued like no tomorrow and b just did not enjoy it i really sort of ran back into a hole going oh no i don't want to do that i just want to carry on doing the work and ugh. it was about six months later where where we got we got a, an offer saying do we want to be uh, global creative directors and we were doing really we were starting to do well then we'd, we'd done some work for shelter mcdonald's had turned around we us and mcdonald's had started to go well we'd done some work for um the brief at the agency at the time was drink drive. So we were starting to have a bit of momentum over, over at Leo's. And they said to us, um, do you want to be global creative directors on hard surface cleaners for Unilever? We went away and we spoke about it. I mean, we actually decided, yes, we'd love to do it because we wanted that training of very difficult clients on a global level on something that wasn't sexy or in any way interesting at the time. The, the bar was very low. And so you started from a low bar and, and it taught you to, to um, push that bar in one direction. And if you can continue to push that in one direction, you'll always do better than the last yeah. and build relationships with clients. That six month period where our, we, we transitioned from the, the writing team at McDonald's and the clients liking us to the CDs on McDonald's and the clients listening to us and then also on a bigger level, on a more global level with P&G. And we knew that because McDonald's at the time was doing some great work and P&G was 
uh, hard surface cleaners was doing some awful work. And we wanted to bring that up and bring that. So around that time, we knew, I started to think that I enjoy, not that, not that, that I started to enjoy it. Um, and I, I enjoyed the effects we could have, and I enjoyed having people's trust. Whether I would describe myself as a leader is a bit of a stretch, but I enjoyed, I enjoyed going into a meeting and somebody asking what I thought and actually listening and having a grown-up chats and again making it fun for them. Fun is a big thing for me. I think if you look at for everybody in the process, for everybody in the process, if you think about. And I, I joke about this a lot that with, and I, it's my guilty pleasure, most definitely my guilty pleasure, is The Apprentice. If you look at The Apprentice, what we do is the is the advertising week. It's like big band week in X Factor. It's the one everybody looks forward to. It's very much the same in a marketing department. Making the work and, and doing something and, and see, that's the fun bit. And so if you make it fun for them, you put them in a more comfortable position to, to buy better work. I don't use fun in a sort of glib sort of, oh, let's all have fun. And it's, it's a very powerful tool. If everybody is comfortable and relaxed and having fun, then boundaries go down and, and, and better work's bought and trust is built, which is, which is massively important. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I know about about you I know to be true about you as a leader is that and again it's kind of making more deepening the idea of this word fun is that actually you are incredibly inspiring partly because you bring this kind of energy and enthusiasm and excitement about the power of the idea to clients you know to teams and I think it is an incredibly precious quality particularly in an age of anxiety and pressure it's very easy for the fun to be kind of sucked out of the whole thing isn't it and actually I think it is part of the leader's role to keep bringing it in. So it sounds as if that's something that's always come quite naturally to you, that kind of infectious enthusiasm. I've, t- I've heard you talk about being stupidly excited sometimes. Is that something that is just a natural part of your makeup, do you think? Ish. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to sit here going, yeah, I'm fun, Bobby. Everything's way. Sure. Um, what is natural is when there's a brilliant idea in front of me, I will always want to share it. And that has been true from as long as I can remember. If, if much to the annoyance of people I've worked with in the past that just want to sit and really think about it and 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 work out what the idea is, I've already told half the people in the agency. And <laughs> uh, so, so Brilliant. when I do hear something, I can't not go and bounce it off people and tell people. So, so be that a script, be that an idea, be that a, I I do have this. And I'm sure it's an incredibly irritating habit if you're working with me, and especially as a crazy partner, when you just want to formulate it in your own head. I've already told everybody, including the receptionist, what do you think of it? Um, <laughs> under the guise of, I'm just going to go to the loo, and I just run around the agency telling people. It's what makes this industry different, and it's where I think it's at its best, when... Everybody that walks through the door feels like they're part of something and feels like they're they're part of, I don't want to use the word fun again, but just part of something. Bringing people along the journey. I've never been one of those creatives that sort of writes with a hand and I'll come and dry ice and present to you. I'd rather go, oh, I don't know what it is, but there's something in here. It could be amazing. I find through conversation and through bouncing it off and through those, every time I retell the idea, 
I embellish it or I take away or I add or I, I, I craft it a bit more. So for me, it was, it was very much a, a way of crafting the idea rather than sitting thinking about it. I'd, I'd, I'd want to tell it and every time I'd tell it, it'd get better or worse or I'd discard it or I'd, I'd, whatever. But um, I think in the, in the process of that, people do feed off, off energy. I think energy is, energy is a massive part of it. I think energy is, is as vital as knowing the craft. And having that energy to push and push and push and push and make it difficult for yourself. And then all, all, the, all the cliches of how you get to good work requires a lot of energy. So energy is important. Fun is important. You know, you obviously had some things in your natural style and also that you started to learn about how to take people with you on the journey to great creativity. When you go back to those early times, finding yourself in a more responsible position, having to get people to listen to you and come with you. What, what were any of the other lessons? Maybe the, what was like the hardest lesson that you had to learn early on about getting to creativity through other people or maybe taking clients with you, for example? I think one thing that I, I, I took a lot of comfort in, um, in a lot, and I still do, is it's okay not to know the answer. It's okay not to know what the way to go is or what the right thing to do is. You, you've always been programmed as, as you're the creative director. You are the person that directs everybody creatively. And I think showing a little bit of vulnerability and showing that I'm not sure I do know the answer to this and what do you think and asking questions and it's okay to get to the answer together um, is incredibly liberating. And again, it's one of those things that it brings people with you. Um, people feel part of something if they think they're answering it together. Clients, creatives, account people, everybody in the agency, every single person in the agency, they feel like they're part of it. it it's just it, the work is better. Yeah, I think that thing about being important to not know the answer is just brilliant. And actually, what I love about it partly is it's one of the real kind of beats, I think, of modern leadership, but that a lot of modern leaders really struggle with because... Yeah, there was always that pressure to have the answer, wasn't there? And actually, a lot of leaders really liked having the answer, didn't they? Well, describing it as leaders for a start, that, that immediately assumes you have the answers to everything. Exactly. And, and in fact, it's something that I work with a lot in coaching is the kind of shift from a leader feeling that tension of I need to have all the answers to actually embracing, you know, modern creative problems are just often too complex, right, for one person to have the answer and there's innovation needing to happen all the time. So actually that kind of philosophy of just as you say it's okay to get to the answer together is it sort of sounds really simple but actually because it requires a really different mindset about leadership and letting go of some of the kind of ego driven stuff that some leaders you know kind of carry around it's sometimes easier said than done and I think the other thing I'd love to kind of pull into the conversation here is that I think when you do that when you go into a room and you say let's all get to the answer together, or I don't know the answer, what do you think? I think you do it with a genuine kind of kindness and a humility. You are definitely not one of those kind of scary rock star, fear-driving leaders of the past, are you? How important is it to you to not be making people afraid? Massively. I've been in those situations where, where people have used that. As I was going through my career, at first, I was terrified, and it was used to keep me up. And then towards the end, I was just like, oh, stop being a dick. To realise how ridiculous you look and sound. Fear is, a, is something that I've sort of wrestled with over the years. 
in terms of its value. And and I say that sounds horrendous, but what I mean is is there's a good fear and there's a bad fear. There's the good fear that sort of drives you that um, keeps you worrying about stuff, worrying about the right stuff, worrying about the work and getting the work right. And and is the work pushed enough? Is it good enough? And then there's there's fear of debilitating fear. Am I going to be fired? Yes. Is this going to anger this person? Am I trying to second guess what this person is so I don't get shouted at? Or more and more and more is am I going to get fired? Um and that's really debilitating. I've wrestled with it personally over years of the two. They're, 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 they're so very differentiated, but they can sort of merge together where you can catastrophize good fear into bad fear. Bad fear is the most debilitating thing, I think, in our industry, in any industry in the world. Anxiety fear, stress fear is, is terrible. Adrenaline fear, pit of stomach excitement fear is the lifeblood of what we do and there's that horrible bit where bit in the middle where they mix because you should be scared you should be scared of doing the best work you should want to do that when i say fun I, I i you have to be scared to have fun it's an adrenaline thing it really is when this job is at its best adrenaline kicks in and it's it's great um but when this job is at its worst you go into fight or flight and it's absolutely horrendous. And we just have to be careful of that. We have to be careful of that across the industry. And uh, that's one of the things that sits that sits so heavily with me as someone who, who runs a department is that fine balance between good and bad fear. Yeah, it's I just love that answer. And, you know, I think one of the things that we've talked about a bit and that is such a truth for leaders is understanding the impact that they personally have on that kind of outcome is it going to be good or bad fear I think many leaders don't really understand that they create the weather around them their mood the way they show up and one of the things that I always encourage leaders to think about is you know don't just think about what you want to achieve in the meeting think about how the person is going to feel walking away you know how they're going to feel about themselves what they can achieve uh, about you etc because as you say it can be on a knife edge actually the difference but the difference is really significant how you perceive that, that that fear and how they perceive that fear can be very different if you're you can be really excited it can be an excited fear but they could be like holy fuck he's excited and i just don't know what to do and i can't i can't sleep i can't sleep it's a very fine line so just staying with the kind of challenges of keeping the work great and we've talked about the fine line between good and bad fear for example and the importance of keeping people feeling energized to keep standards up i mean one of the things that you're known to do brilliantly with your team at Adam and Eve is keeping creative standards consistently high. You know, year after year, you deliver amazing work across an incredible range of clients, you know, from things like the intensely moving Project 84 suicide awareness installation for Calm, which I just thought was stunning, to something much more populous like raising the creative bar every year on the John Lewis campaign, which is literally the most scrutinised piece of commercial creativity every year. You know, how... Now that's fair. Exactly. How do you lead for such consistent creativity? It's not easy. And you do it under an, an amazingly high level of scrutiny. How do you achieve that consistency, do you think? I think, I think if you ask anybody that, I, don't, I think they say, well, I don't really. I try and live by what I tell the department which is be as greedy as you possibly can and the more work we get out that's exciting and 
I want to run around the building telling people about and encourage everybody else to run around the building telling people about. And that can only be a good thing. That's sort of it. I, I just want to be as greedy as possible with those opportunities where I want to run around telling people about it. And this is why, again, this is what I've hated this year because so many good things have were in the offing and they just sort of stopped. Overnight, we, we have this thing called the list in the office, which um, me and uh, our head of strategy, Martin Beverly, sort of curate this list of things that keep us up at night with excitement and we just want to keep on adding to it. And, 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 and it's almost practicing what I say to the creators, which is to be as greedy as possible with all the opportunities that we have because we're very fortunate and we have a lot of opportunities. So just be greedy. Take as many as you can. Be, be like a kid in a sweet shop. Take as much as you can, but just make sure that you 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 deliver on them and and be greedy in as much as gorge on the opportunities to push your career forward. Don't just do them for the sake of doing them. Do them to really sort of propel yourself forward. And, and with that comes the the pushing the agency forward, pushing me as a creative director forward, and Mike. Blah, blah, blah. So so that that sort of um, greed of opportunities is 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 a big thing but this list is 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 where these opportunities the ones i'm most excited about live and i put them all down and we we sort of check in on them every couple of days and make sure that they're all sailing through the agency well and if there's problems how can we help and all that sort of thing and we went into lockdown with this very very long list of really really exciting projects like really really exciting projects and then just the first couple of weeks, one by one, every day one would fall off, and you're just sort of in you're just sort of in the survival mode. And, and what's interesting now is building that back up and maybe revisiting some of them. Yeah, so there's so much in there. I think it's really powerful. One of the things I think that's emerging as quite a theme in this conversation is is the sense of energy. So when you talk about greed being greedy for opportunity again that makes me think of the kind of and it's like an energetic word being greedy it makes me think about the energy that you bring to your teams to encourage them and and I can feel how hard that's been this year so let's talk a bit more about this tough year that we've just been through because obviously it's created a lot of challenges so tell me a bit more about what it's been like to lead through that very difficult time well one thing that, that, that this year has really thrown into question is physical environment and do you need a physical space to do this job? And what does the new normal look like? And what does the new office look like? And we're all going to be working from pods. And uh, all, all, every, I've read every single thing about what the new normal of, of the office will be. And whatever happens, as an industry, we will, we will adapt. That, that will just happen. But there is something about physical spaces. And I've always felt this. I've, I've felt this about venues where music's been played or I've, I've always had this sort of weird spatial association with creativity. The one thing that I feel is not being around people. Our office is this ragtag mishmash of old DDB, which was old BMP, which Adam and Eve came in and ripped down all the walls. And it looks a little bit like a youth centre. It's not, it's not got a fancy staircase. Yeah. We don't have smart floors that talk to our smart ceilings. And we argue about which lamp from Ikea we should get. And it, it, it's really, really not fancy. And a couple of years ago, we cut our desks down 
from 1.7 meters to 1.2 meters because we were running out of space. It had this most profound effect where everybody was just a bit closer and you walk up the stairs and you feel this buzz. You feel like something's happening. You feel that there's conversations happening and, and it's exciting and there's a real playing and there's a coffee bar over there going and, and all the cliches of what a creative company should be. But I've walked into these places and, and it feels soulless. And, and I don't know what it is, but Adam and Eve, it, it feels like there's stuff going on. And I think that's very important because how you walk into the, up those stairs defines how your day will be. Immediately that's been taken away because we can't go into work. And then, again, I don't want to sound like a cliche, but it's those conversations in between, which I know is an overused term and colliding and, and uh, uh, the last nine months. It's, it, but it's true. It's, it's that bouncing around. It's that having conversations you shouldn't be having in a way, the impromptu conversations where you've not necessarily just scheduled a Zoom for half an hour to talk about this project in Excel. And that's gone. And then... People enjoy working with people. And yes, we can do as many Zoom quizzes and meet up illegally or legally and as we like, but but there's just something coming in and how was your weekend? And, oh yeah, I did this. And what do you think of that? That, that, that I think is as important as, as the conversations around the nitty gritty around about the work. So, and that's gone. So with that, it's very hard to summon the energy and for people to 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 have fun because what's happened is the demands have not gone down. In some cases, the demands have gone up. You're sat at the table where you have your dinner and you have you with your flatmates or your and this is in the this is in the best situation. Um, and you're working from there. Whilst it, it it's efficient and you don't need to get on the tube and it's got so many positives. The negatives I, I've found quite debilitating this year in terms of, and you have to dig very, very deep to get the energy and to, to, to bring, to turn up. And that's not just as a leader, but that's as everybody. That's, yeah. that's as a creative team where the creative process isn't ideal at the best of times, where work disappears and feedback gets lost. And But if you're part of this big swirl in the physical space, you can forgive it a little bit when you're sat in your bedroom because you've got nowhere else to go because your flatmates are all doing the same and work disappears or you don't know what's going on or you, you don't, you're not privy to the conversations about briefs that might be there. It's very difficult. So as somebody who, who runs a creative department with Ant Nelson and Mike Sutherland, this is our biggest quandary of how we talk about what we talk about. How do we how do we get a bit more of that sort of impromptuness back in? Because whilst everybody in the creative department has done an amazing job, we're in danger of becoming too responsible, of becoming too sort of, this is what we've been asked to do in this allotted time, and I've done it, and I've done it well. And, and that's brilliant. That is brilliant to get through a pandemic. For as a creative industry is moving forward, it's terrible. I think that's, what, that's what's happened. It's become... Too responsible. Yes. And quite functional, I think, as you're saying, there's that sense of kind of, okay, we've done the job, now we're off the call and we're on to the next call. Yeah. It, it's, as you say, I think there's a sort of lack of corridor conversations, the sort of 
off message chats so that she can be incredibly helpful, but also bond people. And I mean, as a coach, I spent a lot of time through the pandemic year working with leaders, as you know, on things like um, cultural inclusion. I mean, I think it is about the creative process. You're absolutely right. And also it's about this idea of something you said a little earlier, which is about being part of something bigger. And I think inclusion is such an important human need and it's been a real challenge, I think. So yeah, it's been, it's been tough without any doubt, a really challenging time. One of the things I'd love to ask you about is what's come most naturally to you as a leader and what's been more of a struggle. So every leader has stuff they're kind of naturally good at. And we've talked about some of your natural instincts, if you like, as a leader, you know, not to lead through fear, to bring great energy and, and fun to your team, to be uh, not needing to know all the answers yourself. I mean, all of that, those are, are great instincts, but every leader has things that they find harder to do skills that they need to learn and I'd love to just hear from you what has come most naturally to you as a leader and what do you think that you've had to learn to do what has felt harder I think I think what's come naturally is the excitement around good work I've never struggled with that and and just when I think I don't have it yeah I feel it coming on I'm like oh there you are the bit I struggle with which is why I probably struggle with the word leader and and all this sort of is the leadership bit. I, I mean, I, I care greatly about my creative department. Personally, professionally, I want everybody to be the happiest they can be. But in a sort of Disney way, I want everybody to be, well, I think one of the things that doesn't sit that naturally with me is actually the leadership bit of being a leader and, and some of the tough decisions and some of the conversations. I, I can make tough decisions, but... I kind of want to live in this sort of idealised world where everybody's happy and everything's going swimmingly well. When the job starts feeling a bit more like HR than the, than the creative director, that's where I sort of go, this is, that's what I struggle with a bit more. What you're saying will resonate for so many, you know, warm-hearted creative leaders who suddenly find that they have to have these very tough conversations. And as you say, you almost find themselves kind of HR director and it, it doesn't come easy and I mean in, in some ways it's I guess part of the work that I sometimes do with with creative leaders is help them as I say it be themselves with skill you know because there are sometimes skills that you have to just learn to use sometimes through slightly gritted teeth in order to show up in the ways that you need but maybe they're never going to be things that you love doing so I think it's really great that you're kind of acknowledging that. I think I think also it's really interesting at different stages of your career you, you struggle with different things yeah. When when I was first CCD at Adam and Eve, my struggle was, A, I've just gone from being a creative director, I need to be taken seriously. And I found myself in some crazy situations where I found myself on a shoot once where I, the director had completely rewritten the script and the creative wasn't going to read this director's script. I mean, when I say a script, it was like 60 pages long. The creative wasn't going to read this script because the director had written it. And the director, all we wanted to do was for us to read the script. And I, I was reading it, but I wasn't actually thinking what was on the page. I was just thinking, oh, how am I going to deal with this when we've, when we've got to pretend that we stop reading it? Because one of them's going to be insulted. And oh, it's a, and, and, and it's all, it's, it's just it, the management of people in the early days I found um, not difficult, it, it, but, it, but it was one of the things that I really had to focus on. And then when I, when, when I moved it to CCO, it was amazing. I mean, I've always had an insane amount of respect for Ben Priest. 
but I had a newfound insane amount of respect for Ben Priest when I realised what he protected me from and what he what he took on to allow me to just go out there and do what I did. That was the first time, I, going back to the question at the beginning, when did you feel, when you had all that stuff to worry about, you're like, ooh, okay, maybe I'm a leader now. Like, oh, this is... This is this is quite um, it's quite a departure from all you where all you have to worry about is the work, um, and some of it I enjoy and some of it I really really don't and and I call it the grown up stuff. And and Rick, how have you learned to deal with the pressure of that grown up stuff? I mean, you know, I know that you don't pretend to be some superhuman leader who doesn't experience the highs and lows, and you know, there is pressure, of course, in being this kind of industry figurehead that you find yourself as now, like it or not. And yet you do find the resilience to keep inspiring your teams and keep shouldering the pressure. And, you know, we've talked about the challenges of this tough year, for example. How do you keep yourself resilient? What helps? I think I think it's very important to have people, um, a support network of people around you that understand you and what the pressures are. Because... I could sit here and go, oh, where is me? It's very lonely at the top and you never get asked to the pub and blah, 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 blah. I think it's important to have um, people around you that you can talk to and and they don't necessarily have to be in the same level of you or or even in the same job, but just, just having people to to talk to and, and to give you a bit of perspective because it's very hard to lose. It's quite easy to lose perspective when... Things are, and I see it. I see it my, with, with with family members, where the world is collapsing, and then I'm like, seriously, it's just this. Like, it's being able to stand back and go, whatever happens, it is just advertising. It's that old Michael Winner line. It's only a commercial, but but it, it is. It's only advertising, and it's nothing worth getting that wound up about. I think that's a great answer, Rick. I mean, cliches are cliches for a reason, you know, because they espouse simple truths that are helpful to keep reminding ourselves of. And uh, I think that's a really good example of one. So just one final, final question before I let you go. If you, and it is quite a hard question, sorry, but if you had to pick just one thing that you've learned over the years about how to unlock creativity around you, what would it be if you had to just literally put one thing on a postcard that said, okay, you're now a leader for creativity. Here's my one piece of advice for you. What would go on your postcard? Uh, there's so many things. Hire people with incredible taste and let them do what they do. Make it the most enjoyable environment for them to do that. Trying to create a, 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 the best environment possible where they can thrive. Really good. I couldn't think of a better way to end. Rick, thank you so much. I mean, you may not be super comfortable with the idea of leadership, but I'm grateful that you have nonetheless come and talked with me about leadership and you really do embody so many of the things that great modern creative leaders embody. Humility, the ability to say, this is a freaking struggle sometimes, um, the ability to create an energy around you where people are able to do their best. Uh, and I think it's just a great way to kick this podcast off talking about that made not born journey so i'm really grateful for you joining me thank you so much all right thank you very much that was an inspiring conversation with the incredibly down-to-earth rick brim chief creative officer of adam and eve ddb 
I particularly loved what Rick said about making sure you lead with good fear, not debilitating fear. So the kind of fear that's just really about worrying about making the next thing great, not worrying about, am I going to get fired? I also loved what he said about how important it is as a leader to make things fun or it's just another job. And that part of creating that fun is about the energy and enthusiasm around creative possibilities. And there was also another lovely point he made about how important it is, and we've of course struggled with this in the pandemic year, to really create that sense of togetherness and inclusion in your team. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode and that maybe it's given you a little fuel for your own Made Not Born journey, whatever path you're on. If you've enjoyed this episode, please review, share and subscribe to Made Not Born wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram. And finally, if you'd like to know more about my leadership coaching practice, visit growpeople.co.uk. Thanks for listening.